Howdy folks, my name is Josh King. Welcome to Podcast Talks, where we look to an old book to help us live as new men. Podcast Talks is a ministry both of and for Meridian Church. If that ain't you, no worries, stick around, be our guest. Our reading today comes from The Bruised Reed, the most well-known work from the pen of the Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs, who ministered from 1577 to 1635. And though he was a Puritan in his theology and his sympathies, he remained Anglican in his loyalty even when William Laud, Archbishop William Laud, was pressuring high church ceremonialism that smacked of Rome onto the state church. Even so, though Sibbs argued against Laud, he remained in the church and sought to reform her. Now, the bruised reed originated as a series of sermons on Matthew 12, 20, which says a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick, or you'll hear Sibbs say, a smoking the smoking flax, a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And today I'll be reading from Volume 1 of Sibb's Collected Works, published by the Banner of Truth, pages 43 and 47. But I want you to know, the bruised reed is well worth your time. I highly commend it to you. And the Banner of Truth also publishes a standalone Puritan paperback edition of the bruised reed, which you'll be likely glad to know. It has modernized spelling and punctuation. In the portion that I want to read, Sibs is going to answer how we come to have this disposition of being a bruised reed. But before I read that section, let me give you Sibs' definition of what a bruised reed is, or his explanation of what a bruised reed is. The bruised reed, one, is a man that for the most part is in some misery as those were that came to Christ for help. And two, by misery is brought to see sin the cause of it. For whatsoever pretenses sin maketh, yet bruising or breaking is the end of it. Now, there's a nuance that I think Sibs will qualify this a bit with later on. Three, he is sensible of sin and misery, even unto bruising. So, misery leads him to see his sin, and the beholding of his sin leads to a misery of bruising. And four, seeing no help in himself, is carried with restless desire to have supply from another with some hope, which a little raiseth him out of himself to Christ though he dareth not claim any present interest of mercy. This spark of hope being opposed by doubtings and fears rising from corruption maketh him as smoking flax. So the bruised reed is, is what happens by this side of sin and conviction and contrition. And the smoking flax is, is fears and doubtings, a, a, a weakness of faith that get mingled in with it. So that by both these together, a bruised reed and smoking flax, make up the state of a poor, distressed man, such an one as our Savior Christ termeth poor in spirit, Matthew 
who seeth a want, and withal seeth himself indebted to divine justice, and by no means of supply from himself or the creature, and thereupon mourns. And upon some hope of mercy from the promise and examples of those who have obtained mercy, is stirred up to hunger and thirst after it. And so then the question, how shall we come to have this temper? And Sibs answers, first, we must conceive of bruising either as a state into which God bringeth us or as a duty to be performed by us. Both are here meant. We must join with God in bruising of ourselves. When he humbles us, let us humble ourselves and not stand out against him, for then he will redouble his strokes. And let us justify Christ in all his chastisements, knowing that all his dealing towards us is to cause us to return into our own hearts. His work in bruising tendeth to our work in bruising ourselves. Let us lament our own untowardness and say, Lord, what an heart have I that needs all this, that none of this could be spared. We must lay siege to the hardness of our own hearts and aggravate sin all we can. We must look on Christ who was bruised for us, look on him whom we have pierced with our sins. But all directions will not prevail unless God by His Spirit convinceth us deeply, setting our sins before us and driving us to a stand. Then we will make out for mercy. Conviction will breed contrition and this humiliation. Therefore desire God that He would bring a clear and strong light into all the corners of our souls and accompany it with a spirit of power to lay our hearts low. A set measure of bruising ourselves cannot be prescribed, yet it must be so far as one, we may prize Christ above all, and see that a Savior must be had, and two, until we reform that which is amiss, though it be to the cutting off of our right hand or pulling out our right eye. There is a dangerous sliding of the work of humiliation, some alleging this for a pretense for their overly dealing with their own hearts, that Christ will not break the bruised reed. But such must know that every sudden terror and short grief is not that which makes us bruised reeds, not a little hanging down our heads like a bulrush, but a working our hearts to such a grief as will make sin more odious unto us than punishment, and we offer and holy violence against it, else favoring ourselves, we make work for God to bruise us in sharp repentance afterwards. It is dangerous, I confess, in some cases with some spirits to press too much and too long this bruising, because they may die under the wound and burden before they be raised again. Therefore it is good in mixed assemblies to mingle comfort, that every soul may have its due portion. But if we lay this for a ground, that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us, there can be no danger in thorough dealing. It is better to go bruised to heaven than sound to hell. Therefore let us not take off ourselves too soon, nor pull off the plaster before the cure be wrought, but keep ourselves under this work till sin be the sourest, and Christ the sweetest of all things. And when God's hand is upon us in any kind, it is good to divert our sorrow for other things to the root of all which is sin, 
when you suffer any trial, you're, you're not aware that sin underlies it. He's telling us, it's good to divert our sorrow for other things to the root of all, all of our sorrows, the root of it all, ultimately, which is sin. Let our grief run most in that channel that as sin bred grief, so grief may consume sin. When there are trials without, the saints often become aware of sins within. And this can lead to two errors. There are several errors it can lead to, but two which are especially dangerous because they can deceitfully appear righteous. The first we'll call morbid introspection, a sin that many have accused the Puritans of being good at. And indeed, I think sometimes they were guilty of, sometimes. The problem with morbid introspection in this is that that sin, a, a trial exposes sin, and then we conclude that the trial is due to the sin exposed. So a trial causes us to see sin in our heart, and then we just think that that trial is because of the sin that we've seen. And I think the the first thing to note here is that that begins to look at the trial in an unhealthy way. It likely views it as punishment. And the saints need to remember that they are disciplined as children, not punished as the condemned. And then further, when it comes to rooting out causes for our sin in light of some suffering, we simply aren't that smart, and God hasn't spoken. Now, sometimes, perhaps frequently, it's obvious. Sometimes we can see the direct connection between our misery and our sin. In such instances, we know we are being made to taste the consequences of our sin as we're drinking them from the cup of our sin. But perhaps we suffer like Job. And in that instance, remember that even as Job entered into those trials, not for any particular sin, as we go along, sin arises in Job that God then exposes, calling it for what it is. The problem with such introspection, as far as our motives go, I believe, is that we think that if we deal with the sin, we can make the trial go away. What we, the problem is, rather than receiving God's chastisement, we begin to think, how can we get out from under this punishment? How can we do penance such that we don't have to endure this anymore? And our concern isn't any longer holiness, but happiness. We think we, we dug ourselves in, we can dig ourselves out. We think that we can merit mercy. Now, the second error, which Sibs is keen on toppling in our reading, is the one of quickly brushing aside our sin. He won't break the bruised reed. We, we use the text to escape the meaning of the text. He forgives sin. Move on. And then quite often coupled with this is likely a 
um, God, God forgives me, and I'm uh, because of God, I'm strong. And, and there's more, more than a reliance on God. There's a stoic determination to endure the trial. In the first instance, we fear being squashed by God. In the second one, we try to rise above Him or act like Him. And the first error is that of despair, the second one of presumption. Another Puritan warned, despair hath slain her thousand, but presumption her ten thousand. Now, if you're prone to the second of these errors, and you think this text has nothing to do with you, my advice would be to read Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 through 12, several times over, prayerfully, and ask yourself if those Beatitudes there describe you in any way, especially the first ones, poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, ask yourself if those describe you. And if you know nothing of what that passage or this passage means, if you know nothing of what they mean, then know this, you're not a Christian. Because blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, I would venture, this, most of us, we, we don't know anything of that the, the saints, they don't know anything of that kind of extreme presumption. They bounce somewhere between the two dangers, and very likely there's a leaning towards one danger or the other. We bounce more one way than the other. But the problem with both of these errors is this. Neither one is content with being a bruised reed. Neither one receives the father's chastisement as a wise child, leaning into it, receiving it as an expression of his love. So what should we do? We should see both our sin and God's grace, knowing, as Sib says, there's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. We should see ourselves as empty cups and God as an overflowing fountain, knowing that in Christ, he will not break the bruised reed. He will not quench the smoldering wick. Though my sins are infinitely heinous, his grace is infinitely infiniter. I am a thimble, he is the ocean. Now, what is particular, though, I think about the bruised reed and the smoking flax, in distinction from simply being poor in spirit, what's distinct is that not only is there bruising and an awareness of our sins, but the, there's this element of despair, weakness of faith, doubts and fears that are mingled in with this. And I think what Christ wants to express, what the Spirit wishes to express by these words, is, is to that soul that's doubting and fearful, the knowledge that they need not fear. If your faith is like some bad candle that's causing more of a nuisance by its smoke than any kind of pleasure or help by its light, bring that very weakness to Christ in confession and contrition, looking to Him for grace. And when you've done so, know that it's this kind of recognized weakness and contrition that is your strength because you're no longer looking to yourself. You're looking to Christ. 
in that moment of supplication and confession, your faith is purer because you're no longer trusting in your own trusting, but you're trusting in the trusted. You're you're no longer failing to come to Christ because you're consumed with yourself, your sin, and then the added sin of, of your weak and shaken faith. No, you're no longer looking to yourself. You're looking out to Christ. You're no longer really resting on yourself. You're resting on who Christ has revealed himself to be. So despair of yourself. Throw yourself on him. Look to the Christ who will not break the bruised reed, knowing that you don't need to fear confessing your sin. And neither do you need to go on a witch hunt to to kill them all so that there will be rain in the land again. Rather than thinking about how to climb out of the pit by your own efforts, we should thank God for the trial, the suffering, the pain, the misery that has exposed sin and lean into his loving discipline with gratitude. If you're trying to be God, forgiving yourself, brushing your sin aside, thinking that you're strong and you'll make it through this. If you're trying to be God, the sight of sin will terrify you. You'll gloss over it. If you think you have to behave to stay in God's good graces, sin will terrify you. And you'll seek to make amends by penance. But if you look to the Christ who will not extinguish the smoking wick, you can both sorrow for your sin and rejoice for your Savior. You can both repent in sorrow and rejoice in faith. Meridian Church, I love you. Grace and peace.